got the need the need to podcast this is episode 38 mission impossible rogue nation from 2015 I'm Joey Lewandowski. And I'm Mike Manzi. And Mike, our mission, should we choose to accept this, the podcast about this, guest-free tonight because we had a scheduling conflict and the show must go on, but we will have our guest yes. back to talk about Mission Impossible Fallout. Yes, so. we have a two-man team tonight. So let's yes. see. So here is a, uh, before I get into the plot summary, which you and I have once again joked about before we started recording <laughs> about how I once again have a very difficult task here. Most of the show is going to be the plot summary. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be like 45 minutes of plot summary and then in like five minutes being like, yeah, it's pretty cool. And then that's the end of the show. Actually, no, hold on. I'm, I'm going to pump the brakes here. We'll talk about this after the fact. All right, all right. But okay. So here's the plot summary. If you've not seen Mission Impossible Rogue Nation, which is the fifth movie the Mission Impossible franchise. It feels like a lot because it kind of bridges Ghost Protocol with Fallout and tells its own story and whatever. So, okay. In Belarus, Ethan jumps onto, not into, a plane to recover VX nerve gas from terrorists. In London, he's then captured by the Syndicate, who we learn is the anti-IMF. They are working against the old world order, committing acts of terrorism. We then go to D.C., where we see Alec Baldwin, new to the series, as Hunley, testifying to the Senate that the IMF is dangerous. Ethan gets captured and tortured, but is freed by Rebecca Ferguson, also new to the series, who's playing Ilsa Faust. Led by Hunley, the CIA pursues Ethan to Cuba, but he's actually tricked them. He's in Paris. He then meets up with Simon Pegg, who's returning as Benji in Austria. They're hunting the man who captured Ethan. Ethan stops multiple, with help of Benji, stops multiple assassination attempts on the Austrian Chancellor, including one by Ilsa Faust, but a car bomb kills the Chancellor anyway. We then learn that Ilsa is disavowed British intelligence, attempting to infiltrate the Syndicate. Meanwhile, Jeremy Renner, returning as Brandt, teams up with Ving Rhames, returning once again as Luther, to save and protect Ethan and Benji. And then the big action set piece of the movie is they need to steal these highly protected syndicate documents, which means that Ethan has to dive underwater and swap a disc in a liquid-cooled array. Benji steals the documents, but Ethan, surprising no one given Tom Cruise's track record, dies, dies once again. and comes back to life. <laughs> yeah, he's saved by Ilsa, who then steals the documents, but not before Benji's able to make a copy. We learn that the bad guy in this movie, the main bad guy, is Solomon Lane, who captures Benji to force Ethan to capture the British Prime Minister and gain access to the encrypted files after Ilsa's handler blanks Lane's copy. Hunley and Brandt show up to protect the Prime Minister, but Ethan, in an Atlee mask, Atlee is Ilsa Faust's handler in British intelligence, tranks the Prime Minister and gets access anyway. Ethan memorizes the entire ledger, destroys it, and saves Benji's life. He and Ilsa escape from Lane, capture him, and haul him off to prison. The world is safe. And then at the very end, we see Hunley testify that his previous testimony was actually a cover. He becomes the new secretary of the IMF. Movie ends. Way to go. That was so really here well is done. a shorter version of the plot. Are you ready for this? Okay. Cruise runs and jumps onto a plane. Cruise saves the world. Cruise escapes capture by shimmying up a pole while handcuffed without using his legs. Cruise monkeys around a backstage of an opera to prevent assassination. Cruise speed repels off the roof of an opera house. Cruise holds his breath for a long time. Cruise drives a car down some stairs. Cruise drives a motorcycle really fast without a helmet. Cruise wears a mask. Cruise disarms a bomb and saves a bunch of people. Cruise tackles guys through windows. Cruise captures the bad guy and saves the world. <laughs> it's not so hard, is it? No, it's not so <laughs> hard. Benji would say. I mean, come on. It's not impossible. It's not impossible. Oh, God, you're dead. Okay. <laughs> so here's my big takeaway from this movie. All right. I like this movie a little bit less than I thought I was going to. All right. And I think a lot of that has to do with I liked Ghost Protocol way more than I remembered. And yeah. I think that the like the ebb and flow, like we were saying a couple episodes ago that like or a couple of Mission Impossible episodes ago that we didn't think two was gonna be great, but two was better than we remembered. We thought three was gonna be great, three was a little worse than we remember, then four like it's mm-hmm. we're sort of I think you and I maybe and we'll find out what you think here in a second. I think we're sort of teetering on like what we think the movie's gonna be than what it actually turns out to be. Yeah. And so I think because I loved Ghost Protocol so much this one falls a little bit shy. Not that it's bad. Like I, th- I still have this in like my top ten cruise movies. Yeah, yeah. But like it's not as special as I remembered. And I think part of that is that this, for the first time, as I tried to sum up in the, in the plot summary, feels like an MCU movie in that it's not only telling a standalone story, but it's tying into the previous movie, it's setting up the next movie, and it's doing this really heavy balancing act where, like, the previous four movies all had continuity, but each were kind of their own mission. Here, we learned about the Syndicate at the end of the last one. We're going to tackle again Solomon Lane, spoilers, sort of, in the next one, right? Like, there's, it's doing this delicate balance, and I think it does it really well, but I feel like this is the first one in the franchise where it's like, 
oh, we're really in the modern action movie where no movie can actually just be a movie. Every movie mm. also has to tell a franchise story. I feel that for sure, but I kind of love that about this movie because for me, this is the one that like kind of cleans everything up and rearranges it in a way to say like those four movies before this definitely happened and mattered and those events stuck. Uh, there's a great moment where, you know, even Alec Baldwin's like, one time they broke into my work and stole plans from a white vault by propelling, you know, like he mentions the, the theft from the first movie. Right. We see like there's a Easter egg of a rabbit's foot <laughs> with the key yeah. on it and stuff. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're directly referencing the last film with the Kremlin and all that kind of stuff. So I hear what you're saying, like the interconnectedness of it and all that. But for me, it felt more along the lines of like a fast four where it's like okay. we have a clear sort of course for the next few films where we want to go we're trying to like re not reboot but we want to rearrange everybody reset. yeah we want to reset the board right into a certain way for things to come and i think it does that really well and i think one thing that um really separates this from the last movie a lot is uh the last movie had much bigger booms like lots more explosions bigger bangs and not not that that was bad but i think that there might have been an intentional sort of uh, attempt here to to tone that down more because the action is way more what I liked actually it's which is why I think I like this more is it's more of the espionage the suspense sure. that kind of stuff like that scene with Benji and him in the and and Cruz when he's swimming and holding his breath uh, I mean we get a fantastic chase sequence we get action and stuff but yeah they're they're very different movies in that regard and yet they still manage to stay in the same universe and feel connected and all this stuff so yeah i mean there's a lot more to unpack here but like i think i i uh i ended up liking this a little more than i was expecting to well that's good i mean again i want to say like i, I still gave this four out of five star like i still mm -hmm. really like this movie i can't wait to talk more about it i just when i had seen this in theaters and i saw fallout in theaters like i hadn't seen the previous ones since i saw them for the first time when i saw fallout i hadn't seen rogue nation since theaters and when i saw rogue nation i hadn't seen ghost protocol since like home video or whatever right it's like i didn't re-watch them and so like i think i was a little bit lost almost but i, I don't i don't know and i don't know it feels like that helped me in a way and i don't know why like i think i understand this movie better than i ever did before i also do want to say that like i was having such hair blindness here because like i knew that <laughs> solomon lane returns in fallout like i knew that he comes back right but like without his crazy beard here i was like is this the same guy and like yes it is yeah. it's funny he looks more like the only other role i've ever seen him in in um prometheus where he has like that beard and he's got like tattoos around his neck and stuff but i i remember the first time watching this wondering i was like is that simon Pegg? oh no wait that's not simon but he kind of looks like they could be related <laughs> and i wonder if like me knowing what the actual story is here and the backstory of the syndicate and who ilsa faust is like if i'm gonna like fall out even more because like the the amount that i love fallout sort of not really remembering anything from like where these characters you know like mm -hmm, who these mm -hmm. people are like i might like fall out the best of anything like, i don't i really don't know <laughs> what i love about this not just this but what this man what i love about this series is that the characters are so well represented like i think this movie does a great job of like i mean not reintroducing but like saying like look it's brant again and like jeremy renner is the for me this is my favorite character he's played in movies ever but like to pair him up you know with luther and it's like the odd couple for a while and then to yeah. have him be sort of the face of imf and then it gets sort of folded into the cia with baldwin and him and baldwin have great exchanges like i could almost watch an entire movie about those two going through jurisdiction and bureaucracy and shit because of their you know there's almost like him and marky mark and uh the departed the way that they go back and forth and shit sometimes but yeah like i mean it, it, just think this movie does a really good job of juggling a lot of balls without it feeling like it's juggling a lot of balls like i think it, it feels sort of like twistier and turnier than it actually is and it's just like a really because it's like really well directed yeah i don't know man it's just like it pulls off everything i kind of wanted this time around and I, and things i didn't remember were even gonna happen so speaking of hunley for a second because he's not a huge he's not a super important character in this movie he's gonna be a little bit more important in fallout so we'll talk more about him then and also alec baldwin returning from his obviously his iconic role in rock of ages back in the cruise oh oh yeah <laughs> my question and there's there's a couple things in here that i don't fully understand i don't know that they fully matter but the okay. one thing about him that i don't understand is that in the beginning of the movie he seems so impassioned and so against jeremy renner and like we need to shut the imf down at the end he's basically just like hey just kidding 
is that real? Like, was he actually cover, or was he just sort of like, oh, I get, like, oh. he was so against the IMF, then the IMF saves the world again. He's like, actually, they're like, they're kind of important. Like, I know it doesn't matter, but what's your take on that? Like, do you think the beginning was earnest, or was he actually putting up an act to disavow and to like basically set this set this whole thing in motion? I believe him because he's like one of my favorite. You believe him in the beginning, or you believe him at the end? I believe him in the beginning. I'm sorry, right. I believe him in the beginning. Like, I feel like this character goes through a complete arc, and most of it takes place in the room when they're abducting the prime minister or whoever trying to get the code and all that right. stuff and when the truth about the syndicate is revealed and all this stuff and and he can't deny like what's going on and he ends up the idea that he ends up becoming the head or like the secretary the secretary of the IMF at the end like I love that irony about his character because it's almost like he had to cross the aisle like he has irrefutable proof right it was almost like he was a birther and now he saw the birth certificate and he's like holy shit like I, my eyes or- deny in a more apt metaphor even though that that one works like the other movie that we're releasing today on the other tom tom club on hanks for the memories like the polar express like he hopped aboard the train saw the magic met santa was like oh yeah like i believe yeah. again yeah so i love that he kind of comes around at the end and all of this shit that jeremy renner kind of put him through he like you know understands that and yeah, that was a really interesting twist, I actually thought. I, I, I thought he was going to be, you know, we were going to have to deal with two villains this movie. And we kind of do, but, like, for the most part, it's Solomon Lane and all of his string pulling. Uh, yeah. But it was nice to have the Huntley thing in there because it's kind of um, the, the levity, you know, a little bit there and also, like, really worked out plot-wise. Then the other question that I want to get clarity on is that, so we have Atlee, who is Ilsa Faust's handler, right? Yeah. And I don't fully understand his motivations here. So toward the end, you know, they steal the ledger. So basically the, the, the main action set piece here is that they have to get this encrypted document and Benji's got to walk through this hallway, but they can't wear a mask because like it also tracks the body movement or whatever. So Ethan has to go underwater and like, because they keep it cooled under there because it's always running or whatever. And he has to literally swap out a disc so to shut this thing down, whatever things go bad. We'll talk about that. The document that he gets that he makes a copy of because he probably figures sabotage that Ilsa takes, she brings to Atlee and she's like, look, here's what you wanted. I want out of the syndicate. Like, I don't want this job anymore. Like, let me resume my normal British intelligence. And he's like, tough shit, girl, go back there. But he blanks the disc. Why does he blank the disc? Is he evil or is he just... Yeah, so we find out that he actually came up with the strategy of the syndicate, right? And was like, we could do this, this will work, we could change the course of the world. And the prime minister or the the, the main guy, he was like, don't do it. And Atlee went ahead and did it anyway. And when he realized it was going bad, that's when Solomon Lane stepped in and was like, I'm going to take control of this operation. I'm going to, you know, use all these resources to execute this, the syndicate's plan. Then she steals the ledger with the money, brings it over to Atlee, and then he does erase the ledger. I don't know why he does that, because it almost proves his guilt, right? Like, yeah. if they're going to find out anyway that he was to blame for the creation of the syndicate, it's a little odd. I'm not sure. I think it's explained but so many things have to get explained sort of in the third act that I might have missed it. But I think it's explained in the scene when everybody's getting tranquilized by Ethan. <laughs> in a franchise, in a world where everyone is basically the utmost professional, like people have jokes and people like tease each other or whatever, but like everyone is basically the best in the world at their job, right? Like they're all exceptional. And like Ethan's the best at everything, but like everyone is at the top of their game. For him to so overtly give himself up, because, you know, Ilsa's like, how can, it can't be blank. There's no way that can be blank. And he's like, was it ever out of your possession? She, like, realizes instantly Atlee screwed her over, right? Like, yeah. for it to be so overt, it's like, this has to mean something, but I feel like it's not made a bigger deal when they reveal. And, like, I don't know if I was oh, just trying to, like, keep up with so many okay. things, I just lost it. I think I remember what it could be. Okay, so he blanks the ledger, so she doesn't find out that he's on it or responsible for it and I think he's hoping that when she goes back with the blank ledger they're going to kill her and it like cleans up so his So she's mess. like getting too close to him kind right. of. Right. She's like pull me out. This is the moment she's like I'm supposed to be extracted today. Like I brought you this thing. This is why I did this whole thing and he's like no go back one more time and I think it was his idea to send her back with the blank 
disc and then they would shoot her and they'd be like oh she clearly like is you know this is one time too many she's been kind of screwing them over uh all movie right like which realistically solomon lean should have killed her like when that's when she goes to the hotel again and once again does a leg lock with around somebody's neck which is like the coolest move in the game i think he only keeps her alive because she's like she's well because like she's what she he can use her to get ethan Okay. Like, you know, like, she can't do that miraculous breath-holding dive into the submerged tech vault or whatever it is. Like, they need Ethan to do that and stuff. So yeah, he kind of needs... breath. We see her holding her breath only for two minutes, and they need at least three yeah. if things don't go bad. Because there's no way that Solomon doesn't know that she's ex-British intelligence because her boss is the guy who created the syndicate in the first place. So, like, he's, you know, he knows more than he's saying the whole movie anyway man oh man okay okay that, that at least that makes sense because like there were those are the big two questions like the alec baldwin thing doesn't matter because like at the end he's firmly team imf i also forgot like i thought jeremy renner in the last movie in ghost protocol he's kind of like kind of goody goody and like we, we shouldn't be doing this but here he's mm-hmm. like firmly imf and i for some reason i was thinking like oh he's going to betray them in some way but no he never does he's always firmly to the team and not only that like he goes he basically convinces alec baldwin to like or he gets luther right like they they go and save the day or they help ethan save the day i didn't i completely misremembered his role in here his absence in fallout is even more confusing then yes especially since jeremy renner has apparently according to imdb trivia one more mission impossible movie on his contract like he can he's coming back for some at some point although i don't think i've seen news about that either like where does he go? Like, I understand, like we talked about on Ghost Protocol and other ones in the franchise, that there's so many parts here and, like, they do such a good job. Like, this is one thing they do better than The Fast and Furious is, like, they don't have to show all 12 people in the family and give them all, like, screen time or whatever. They're like, yeah. this is the first time where, like, everybody comes back. Like, normally they're like, oh, we don't really need Luther. Like, sorry, Ving Rhames. Like, you're... I hear what you're saying. I think the, I think maybe if there's one thing that maybe kind of disservices this film is they dissolve the IMF too soon. I would have loved to have seen Jeremy Renner actually running more of a mission than we see him in the very, very opening, the cold open, we see he's in charge, you know? So I think we, I think if we had more of a clear idea that like, because of the events of the last movie where he was sort of wishy-washy on this whole thing and there he is like answering to the, you know, the jury about like, oh, most of this is just blind luck. Like he knows that's, probably true too but he also knows that they do save the world and everything so i think he's sort of like what alec baldwin becomes by the end of this movie he sort of became in the end of the last movie where you sort of like doubted a bit of like their techniques and stuff like that but in the end the results you know are what matter and so in this movie he's starting off i think he's full team ethan and he's just really trying to make sure that he does not get killed you know by any buddy in the CIA at that point or anything. Like, I wonder, and this is spoilers for Fallout, and I feel like anybody listening to a podcast about Rogue Nation has seen Fallout, but in case you haven't seen Fallout and you don't want a spoiler, jump ahead like a minute. But in Fallout, if I remember right, Alec Baldwin gets shot and killed, right? He dies in the next one, right? I thought so, yeah. I have to see it again, So yeah. I think it would be very cool if in 8, like, Jeremy Renner is the new secretary of the IMF. Yeah. I don't know if he's senior enough, but I think that could be a natural evolution of his character. Yeah, that would be cool. That's what I was sort of expecting him to be in Fallout, or at least in this movie. I, I don't know, because I kind of love that we got that from him in the, in the last movie. He used to be a field agent. He thought he fucked up by letting Ethan's wife die, and so he went and became, like, the right. desk jockey, like, the ultimate desk man but like you know he's more of that you know paper pusher i'll be in the meetings passing all this legislation while you guys are out like doing shit and he's just as tactical doing that kind of stuff but it is going to be weird in the next movie especially since we know he was like off filming avengers and things like that it makes it even weirder you know even to think that like you know superman has a mustache in that movie and all that you know it's just so weird with all the production problems and things that they you know, had to go ahead without him and stuff because I do really love his character. So, I mean, we'll see how that shakes out. Also, I do want to point out Superman with a mustache. Henry Cavill was supposed to be in this movie. What? Where? What? <laughs> no, never mind. Never mind. I'm sorry. Okay. Hold on. Okay. <laughs> I confused two things. So Tom Cruise was supposed to be the man from Uncle, but then he dropped oh. out of that movie to do this movie. And so instead he was replaced by Henry Cavill, who would then go on to be okay. in Fallout 2. So like there was a little bit of a little bit of confusion there. But yeah, so like that movie there was fun. a Cavill connection here. But yeah, I liked Man from Uncle that an Army Hammer. They never did. Yeah, another, like this. But... So 2015, there were so many spy movies, like a crazy yeah. amount of spy. Movies. I think I saw them all in theaters, too. <laughs> my dad but like if you remember there was spy which is yep, great saw the that yep. melissa mccarthy one 
Spectre, of course. Uh huh. Love that. Sicario. Yeah. Survivor with Pierce Brosnan, which I haven't seen. Oh, okay. I think I saw that at home. Black Mass, which is the FBI movie with Johnny Depp. Mordecai, which I don't know. Oh, Queen no. of the Desert, which Mordecai. I don't know. Furious Seven has agents. Mission Impossible: Rogue Nation. Bridge of Spies. Man from Uncle. And even Kingsman was widely yeah. released in oh, 2015. Wow. Like, there's a lot. There's a lot of spy movies that year. Love spy films. I mean, yeah. yeah. So speaking of spy films, speaking about loving them, what is your favorite part? Do you have a favorite part of Rogue Nation? Oh, I mean, Rebecca Ferguson. This is the first time I ever saw her, and I remember in the theater going, like, I'm under some kind of spell or something. Like, what is going on? Who is this person? Like, where did they come from? How can I see more of the work? All this stuff. And, like, I was so happy to see her as the hat lady in Dr. Sleep. Like, she's great. I know I just kind of, like, ruined oh, it by right. calling her hat lady and everything. No, but, I, like... I was trying to remember where else I knew her from. Yes. <laughs> That is, like, kind of the only other thing I know her from and this movie, but, like, she is Well, also, you will remember, very briefly, the Zack Attack connection. She plays the woman that Hugh Jackman, spoilers for Greatest Showman, she's the woman that Hugh Jackman falls in love with while he goes on tour and leaves, basically leaves his wife for. Or wants to leave his wife for. I love that movie. That movie's amazing. I did not realize that was her because, was she singing in that? Because that lady... That no. character's voice was like supposed to be, yeah. you know, phenomenal. So like, I maybe think that's what I think that was Adina Menzel, the Broadway actor oh, who also Adele is uh, Mandela or whatever. Adele, Adele Dazim, <laughs> yes, from Frozen. I think I think she did the voice, but yeah, Rebecca Ferguson is Jenny Lind. Okay, there were things they were trying to say, like you know, if things if something happened, like she was going to take over the franchise, like her character. And dude, I'm all for that. Like I know they tried to do like girl bond a lot, and in the '90s they even did like that um, Halle Berry's character Jinx was supposed to spin off into her own series from the Bond movies and everything and like you know lately we've had like Atomic Blonde and stuff like that and like she fits right in and we had Halle Berry again in John Wick 3 kind of similar I love everything she does in this movie she looks amazing she moves amazing like she sounds amazing she she's like almost like the female Tom Cruise right like (laughs) as far as this film goes like you know, they're almost like mirrors of each other's character in this movie, and I love it. I was looking on Google Images for a picture of the two of them for the art for this episode for social media and for cageclub.me, and I found the one where he's basically using himself as a shield to protect her, but she's shooting the guys at the end because like, they know that he can't die because he is the ledger, right? He is mm-hmm. the disc. Yeah. <laughs> I found this one, and it was like there's this article on MTV from, I think, recently, maybe Fallout-ish release, talking about Rogue Nation, though, and talking about how, like, Rebecca Ferguson, it's just like a showcase for her, because she was talking about how, like, how great Tom Cruise was. He has no ego, and he wants everybody to be as cool and as good as he is. And, like, I think that shows, especially in this franchise, like, he wanted, like, he wants to make everybody look badass and awesome, and, like, it works, because, like, she's so cool. Like, I'm gonna love her even more when she shows up in the next one. Like, again, Hattie Shaw, Vanessa Kirby in the next movie, too. Like, she's great, too. Like, they do a great job, and I feel like this franchise has not exactly treated female characters well like in each movie i think it does a good job but like we talked about not bringing the person back from movie after movie right yeah in this movie like tom cruise like ethan is married and his wife isn't even in this you know what i mean it's just like <laughs> that's a good call i'm like she's off with west bentley somewhere right running experiments in the desert isn't that where she is in the next movie yeah. spoiler <laughs> yes but yeah michelle monaghan does not come back and like i feel like it's finally like we have essentially what you said like Ethan's equal in Ilsa Faust and she's going to come back in the next movie and sort of be doing her own thing but she is so badass from the jump and like her emergence as like this sort of sleeper cell kind of and like she's like I'm gonna help you but like I'm not really gonna help you like you're gonna have to get on this on your own but like I'm gonna help you break out and like from the beginning she's got a bigger body count in this movie than Ethan does like it just she's awesome it's great like I'm still not sure until the very end pretty much like like when she steals the thing after the whole water vault stuff like I still am like what side is she on you know like she plays that stuff so well and like and I still feel like even if you know the whole thing you don't really know no, because that's how I was watching it this time, because I'd seen it before, and I was like, the way that she's playing it, w- like, she's not trying to hide anything, right? It, she's playing it to them like, I'm double-crossing you, you know? And I don't see any hint of anything else during those sequences and stuff. But, yeah, it's just, she's so good in this movie. It was such a smart idea, and it's so great to hear that, like, about Cruz. It almost sounds like what uh, Cage does from time to time is, yeah. like, he just tries to showcase the other people and, like, use his abilities to, like, sort of rub off on them and everything. I think it, it's certainly worked here because, like, 
I don't know any other better word except for showcase. Like, this is her reel. You know, like, watch this movie, and you're yeah. like, oh, this person can do everything you ask her to. Like, I almost wish she was on Westworld this season or something. Like, yeah, I can see that. She would fit perfectly there. They apparently saw her, Cruz and Macquarie saw her in The White Queen, which I think was like a limited series, I want to say, like, maybe on Showtime or Stars. And so she was, I think, the star of that or one of the leads in that from 2012, 2013-ish. And so they were like, oh, we need her in the movie that shows. I think there's also, like, really great interplay between the two them and again because i have fast and furious in the brain at all times and hobbs and shaw there's a thing that hattie does in hobbs and shaw that ilsa does here they take their high heels off to run and like after so much shit was given to jurassic world for having bryce dallas howard like oh spend the entire movie <laughs> running from dinosaurs in heels yeah. for like for from the beginning when Cruz is tied up, he's handcuffed to that pole, and again, I mentioned it very briefly in my second plot summary, but, like, him inverting his body and shimmying up a pole without using his arms or legs to escape, like, it's in, like, it's bonkers. You know it's real, because CGI bodies don't move like they're more wiggly, but you, my mind still can't really process it fully, what I was seeing, you know? I was like, how can that how can anyone do that? It's like a body can't move like that. <laughs> it's stronger abdominals than we will ever have. That's all I know. But like in yeah. that scene before he frees himself, you know, he's talking shit to the guy. He's like, you're the bone doctor or whatever. Right. And then he's like, nice shoes. And the guy looks down. And he's like, no, not you hurt. And like, there's like mm. a bond. There's a connection there. They're going and like, they're running and she like, puts her feet out and like he's oh, yeah. kind of admiring her shoes and she's like no dummy like take the shoes off and like yeah when the they're running off. from the opera house right yeah, yeah. <laughs> but then what i love and one of my favorite things i don't know if it's my favorite moment but i think again like you would probably it's just ilsa in general but like he asks he turns and asks her which i think is such a great meta tom cruise moment he says how's the pace like yes hey, i know oh, that i've yeah. been running in movies since 1981 but like am i going too fast and she's basically just like oh, don't worry about me, I can keep up. And it's like, yeah, she can. I almost wondered if that was like a part of an outtake, that like something might have screwed up and so he like let something, sl I don't know, but I caught that and I was like, that is such a natural thing to say in that moment. <laughs> yeah, and I also like that when, you know, Benji's like, she tried to shoot me because after the, like the multiple assassination attempt. Oh yeah, this great and line. Ethan just says, that doesn't mean she's a bad person. Like, <laughs> she's just doing a job. Like, you know, Benji, you know. Like, Ethan is so, like, he's like mainlined in this movie. Like, he is just wired from the beginning to the end and I love it. Like, he's constantly on and, you know, like, he doesn't miss a beat, and it's hilarious. Like, I even love the look on his face when Benji's always... Ilsa's explaining, like, how they need to infiltrate the water vault, and Benji's like, oh, that's not a big deal. You can hold your breath for three minutes. And he looks at Benji like, ah, huh? Like, yeah. come on, dude. Like, what do you... What? And he's like, you know, and what's another minute and a half? You could do this. And he's like, Jesus Christ. <laughs> like, what I really like about this movie is that it feels, like you said, that, you know, he Ethan was wired this entire time. We saw this in Ghost Protocol, too, when they were sort of disavowed. Like, he's always kind of disavowed, right? Like, he's always, like, Ethan Hunt has gone through or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. It feels like here, like at the end of Ghost Protocol, and like we basically got this bag of stuff, and those are all the tricks that we have. Like it feels like they even have like less here, and it feels like they're almost getting by just by sheer willpower. And like Benji's impassioned speech about like it doesn't matter what I say to Alec Baldwin every Monday, like I'm your friend and I'm here for you. And like he has this whole heartfelt speech, and Ethan just like, yeah, okay, you can stay. But like, mm -hmm. it, you know, not only is Tom Cruise kind of raising the level of everyone around him, but it feels like Ethan is raising the level of everyone around him. Like, I'm doing this because I need to do this because this guy is the basically the face of evil, and if I don't stop him, no one else will, and the world will be a worse place. Just based on that, like, gut, determination, willpower, whatever, everyone else is like, I need to keep up with him. It's, I think, why, to a certain extent, Brant and Luther go, because they're like, we need to help Ethan. Ethan might not need help, but, like, we need to make sure that if he does need help, we're there. And I feel like Ethan is just like... Yeah raising everyone up with him and it's just great well i think it's also why i accept benji so much in like a bigger role this time around like he's his number one guy you know like he's luther this time around right whereas like you I, I always feel like it's ethan then luther's his like sort of second in command now it's like benji and it's so funny how it's like at first he's like i just need to use you for one thing and benji's like no i'm sticking around like you can't yeah. send me home like yeah. i'm an adult and like simon Pegg just is fucking brings it 
I think the closest he ever comes to like a quote unquote like action star's hot fuzz. Like he can right. pull this kind of stuff off, but he's not going for that here. He just feels like a normal dude who's capable of this kind of stuff. You know, like if you or I were going to do it, like we might not beat the guy as bad as Ethan, but like we'll probably like get the job done <laughs> or something. Like you know, maybe Tom Cruise came around and was like, this time he's getting a bigger role or or whatever. But like Simon Pegg definitely stepped up to the plate and uh, delivers in this movie for sure. Absolutely, absolutely. Now on the other side of the coin, is there something about this movie that you... Oh, actually, no, I didn't say my favorite thing. This movie was sold via commercials and trailers as, like, the movie where Tom Cruise hangs off a plane, right? It's just, like, yes. every marketing material had him on the side of a plane. It's like, how the hell? And, like, he actually did that. He was, like, 5,000 feet in the air at some points. Like, he had, like, all these wires on him that they removed. But, like, he's actually on the plane. Like, he's insane, right? He's crazy. Yeah. And they sold this movie as, like, look at Ethan. He's on a plane. What is he going to do next? And then you see the movie, and that's literally the first scene. And you're like, where the hell does this movie go if this is where they're starting? I remembered, and this is, again, maybe why I liked it a little bit less, is I remember there being, like, five or six, like, huge action set pieces. And there's, like, three or four, but I feel like there's fewer. And I think, to your point, like, it's... The espionage stuff is great. I think it was just not the movie that I was remembering, but there's, like, the plane thing in the beginning, there's the water sequence, there's the chase sequence, like, there's big set pieces here, but I feel like it was a little bit smaller, and I wasn't remembering it the way that it actually played out, and I think that's why, like, I think next time I see Rogue Nation, I'm going to like it even more, because I remember more what kind of movie it is, if that makes sense. Oh, totally, yeah, I think that's what I was saying, I think that's the difference here between Brad Bird and Macquarie, is, like, Brad Bird is much more of, like, a huge explosion-y kind of action guy, and Macquarie is more of, like, a okay a motorcycle does explode but it's like the only explosion in the whole movie but like that's the thing it's like it's gonna take a double car chase that starts in trucks and ends up on motorcycles for something that explosion for that explosion to happen but like you know i totally see that and i feel that and like uh, i think these movies fluctuate like that i think the next one to my recollection like goes bigger i think it might have even been a criticism of this movie where it's like hey where's all the explosions you know with the fucking kremlin it blew up last movie you know there was almost like this new thing that was going on and all that I definitely felt that but part of me is like well that's Mission Impossible like I like it more when it's low key I guess so and it seems like a lot of the decisions in this movie a lot of the characters they pulled and sort of references they made in storyline and everything tied more into the 1966 TV show than any of the other movies. Like, it's, it's doing the movie stuff, but it's also referencing back to the original series more so than any movie maybe since the first have done. Okay. And so I think that there's sort of a, an idea to go smaller there because, like, even if, like, the TV show was crazy, like, there's no way that, like, the size or the scope or the scale of the TV show from 50 years before was anything like, you know, Ghost Protocol, right? Like, it's a different ballgame altogether. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm also curious, they wanted to bring Brad Bird back to do this movie. So, like, we had talked about for the first four movies, they had four different directors. Macquarie here, so there's five for five now. He's obviously going to do six, and they just signed on to do seven and eight, too. And, like, he he never wanted to do it again because he's like, how do I top myself? And then he did Fallout. He's like, okay, I top myself. Like, how do I? And, like, he didn't want to do it again, but they signed him back for two more. And so we'll see what <laughs> eight and nine are like, but or, or seven and eight are like. It's the new space race between them and the Fast series, right? Absolutely. The fast but they wanted to bring Brad Bird back for this, and he said no. He wanted to make Tomorrowland instead. Oh. And I wonder what he would have done because the other very notable trivia thing about this movie that I remember without looking at the trivia before at the end is that they didn't really have a finished script when they started shooting so like they had the entire underwater scene sequenced and they actually shot that without fully knowing and this is insane they shot that entire thing without fully knowing what they were stealing wow that's amazing that's insane insane but also like oh weird okay like that's almost but also like feels just like movies (laughs) movies <laughs> yeah i don't know really where this is gonna go we'll find it in the edit or whatever it reminds me of national treasure too right didn't they have the same issue didn't they actually end up kidnapping a head of state to unlock a secret of a book <laughs> i don't know i was starting to get feels of that at the end here where it's like a movie that has no ending just turns into national treasure <laughs> everything is we're all national treasure right now but yeah i, th- I wonder like if Brad Bird had been here, like, there's also, like, a screenwriter who did the script, and then, like, he wanted to do some rewrites, and I think Macquarie and Cruz, like, mm. weren't thrilled with where I was going. Or, there was, like, a whole, like, kind of muddied situation there, so he got partial credit, like, he gets the story by, and Macquarie gets the screenplay by, because he, like, rewrote it or whatever. Yeah. So it feels like there's a lot in flux here, and I do wonder 
what it would have been like if Brad Bird came back, if they had had a different screenwriting process. Like, would this have been similar? Would this have been bigger? Like, it would have been more like Ghost Protocol, or does it vacillate? And, like, does mm-hmm. Fallout then change? Like, I'm glad at how it all played out, but, like, there's, like, a very easy-to-play sli- – not easy-to-play, but, like, easy-to-see game of sliding doors here. Like, what could this have been? So I think the other movie that Brad Bird made between Mission Impossible and Tomorrowland was – John Carter, I think, or John something. John Carter, yeah. What's weird about that movie is I'm watching it and I'm going like, this is tiny compared to what it should be. And the Brad Bird, I know, I'm like, where's the explosions? Where's like the crazy giant set pieces? And for right. the most part, it's like very sort of toned down uh, more than... I, and same with Tomorrowland. I'm like, I expected Tomorrowland to be like this crazy, futuristic, mind-blowing, just visual treat. And it kind of isn't. Like, it's still a pretty cool idea. And like, I don't... I don't hate that movie or anything. I kind of like it. But I think he might have come back to Mission Impossible and tried to just, this is where I can play. This is where I'm comfortable going big and all this. So I think he might have come back and tried to, like, blow more shit up and, you know, go on a higher level. But that's just the way I'm thinking, judging by the stuff that he was making in between, you know, uh, very special effects driven, very CGI heavy kind of stuff. I think this would have been like, oh, let's go back to practical shit. Let's, you know, have Tom Cruise run in front of a bunch of fiery things and, like, you know, let's like take down a bunch of helicopters or something. So I'm looking right now and we're, you're, we were both conflating two different things that John Carter was done by Andrew Stanton, who's another former Pixar guy. But okay. still, to your point, like it's a different thing. Like Tomorrowland is smaller, right? Like, it is a different thing. Although, Brad Bird, did you know Brad Bird's, one of his first directorial credits is Bart Simpson, Do the Bartman, the short video? Yeah, I think I heard the story where, like, he drew most of that, too. Like, the cycles, like, the animation cycles. So, like, the way people dance and stuff, he's like, this is how they dance. (laughs) Because he did, he went from doing uh, a TV show to Bart Simpson, Do the Bartman, two episodes of The Simpsons, then Iron Giant, Incredibles, Jack-Jack Attack, Ratatouille, Ghost Protocol, Tomorrowland, and Incredibles 2. Like, it's kind of all over the place, but Incredibles is different because Incredibles is animated, but it does feel like he's kind of like, I don't really remember Iron Giant, but, like, it feels like these movies could be huge but they're like they're kind of smaller by choice except for Ghost Protocol where it's like it could be smaller like no we're gonna make it we're gonna blow it up literally blow it up and even if you think of Incredibles right like it's pretty like it's about being covert and low-key it's that's kind of a spy film too in a lot of ways right like yeah he doesn't go big until the very end for the most part it's just like these little one-on-one kind of battles with mr incredible and stuff. i don't know it's kind of interesting to to think about though and yeah i think you're right i got those i got ghost to mars confused in there because the other guy who made it worked on the simpsons right so i think my favorite part of this movie and it's again a small thing is just another one of like what can what can't ethan do but when he memorizes like you're like oh, how do we get dude. rid of the ledger and he's <laughs> Just like, well, I got a plan. He just memorizes, you know, 50 people and bank account numbers and amounts and everything. And it's just like, oh, like, pr- it's presumably in like, in minutes, right? He's just like, oh, I got it. And then he goes and saves Ben. Like, it's not only that he has everything in his brain, but he then saves, not the world, but he saves that entire square of people, right? And like, saves his friend's life, saves his own life, saves Elsa's life, is able to negotiate Solomon Lane down, and then lead on this chase. And it's just like, there's nothing this guy can't do. Like, if he sets his mind to it, whether he's actually like Tom Cruise holding his breath for six minutes, or, you know, Ethan holding his breath for four minutes, you know, memorizing an entire ledger, or shimmying up a pole, or jumping onto a plane, like, there's nothing that Ethan, or by extension Tom Cruise, can't or won't do, and it's just, you know, even when it's not action-y, it's just like, this is incredible. The memorizing the ledger thing, to me, is like the most impossible thing his character does throughout the entire six movies, but I fucking love it, because it's like, yeah, this is totally the kind of guy who has, like, that photographic memory, and he's literally taking pictures as he's like going left to right with his brain and remembering all that he's like a mimic from edge of tomorrow right he's got like that kind of memory yeah where it's like yeah i've lived this day before so i can like memorize this list no problemo i remember sitting in theaters going like what a bold fucking move for this movie to be like you know like i am the list like that like, to go that route to be like to be able to believe that this character could memorize that and then for it to be true and every and like to get over on Solomon Lane like that and it's just so great yeah now I think I've I've made my minor sort of nitpicky ish mm-hmm. not really nitpicky but you know sort of 
again, I can overlook these criticisms, but is there anything about this movie that you don't like? Anything that you think is your least favorite part of Rogue Nation? So I got two very small about it. Well, actually, maybe three. One, I think they kind of jump around the world a little too much, but that's Especially just like... early on. Yeah, like, I think movies that do that, even Bond, a couple Bonds do that. By the way, I think there's a great nod to James Bond at the end of this when they catch Solomon and those blaring trumpets play as they're all standing <laughs> around. It's like... It's like literally James Bond. The only difference is like Bond doesn't really have like a team every movie. Anyway, uh, so like my main, my one main complaint is I really wish we had maybe just one more scene of Solomon Lane. I don't know what he'd be doing, but we really just get from him the way other characters sort of play off him. Like, don't get me wrong, like he's threatening and all this kind of stuff, but he is also sort of like this small little dude who like, I I almost wish we saw him like fight at one point right so i could say to myself oh you know if he did catch ethan face to face maybe they would have like a knife fight or something like he reminds me and i didn't think about this while watching but thinking about the way you describe him and thinking once again about fast and furious he's kind of cypher-esque in a way where he's like Mm -hmm. he doesn't want to get his hands dirty but he again in the beginning of this movie does get his hands dirty because he's there when Ethan gets captured, apparently you can see him sitting in the background yeah. as Ethan goes into the the room, and then he shoots and kills that girl there. Like he is willing to get his hands dirty in a way that Cipher really kind of isn't in Fate of the Furious. But I, I agree that like it would be cool to see more of him because he is. I, I I mean I do want to give him credit, the actor and the character. Like he is incredibly menacing given how little we know about him. But if we had a little bit more, I mean I don't. It, I guess it could ruin the mystique a little bit, but maybe not. I think it would be make him a little more dangerous because one thing you don't really see too much in in films except for maybe with like the joker is like you just assume that this guy is paying all of his henchmen to do what they want otherwise they just kill him and do this shit themselves right so like they need to have like a real a reason why they're not sort of taking over for themselves like aside from not being smart enough or anything but like what is keeping them in line we get a degree of it when we see him kill that one henchman like for no reason basically just to like reinstate like what a threat he really is like a wild card he can he's like no value for human life whatsoever it's like okay now i get it but maybe just punch that up just a little more and then my other complaint is man i just wish that plane sequence was in the middle of the movie or at least like 15 minutes in the movie like i love it but you're right it almost feels like it's like blowing its wad a little bit right there in the beginning don't get me wrong the movie does it for me like through and through but like you said like the movie was almost sold on that moment and for it to come immediately almost felt like it didn't wasn't even in the movie it was almost like here's a little short film and now we're gonna go do mission impossible five and like that kind of bothered me even more this time to be quite honest with you i'm like whoa like this seems like a misstep this needed to be the finale i don't know but like i I, it was a calculated risk i don't think it paid off for them like i think they do a smart thing of like being it's not completely separate. Like, it does feel like if you went to see a movie in IMAX, they'd be like, you know, instead of seeing a six-minute thing from Tenet, you're seeing the six-minute opening thing from Mission Impossible Rogue Nation, right? Because it's like mm-hmm. a standalone thing or whatever, right? I think they do a smart thing of tying the VX nerve gas that he saves into the Chechens, into the Syndicate, but it really kind of doesn't. It's just like a, oh, right, the Syndicate, like the last line from the last movie, I remember now. Yeah, okay, and they're cool. doing so much anyway. It's like, oh, of course, like, that was one of their operations. Every operation's one of their operations, you know? They're like a step below Spectre in that regard. <laughs> I don't have any other nits that I haven't picked already. Some other cool things I want to mention, I think it's the world's coolest turntable and vinyl record in the beginning when they are oh, in that booth. I miss, I mean, when I was, like, really heavy into digging for records and stuff, like, I went to, a, there were a few, one or two spots in New York that still had um, listening rooms like that, and that, man, I miss that. Like, that's so cool. Yeah. That's such a throwback. Apparently, that's very similar to the original TV show where they had vinyl records and stuff on vinyl and stuff like that, so a nice little throwback there. That's a beautiful moment, though, in the opening when he's listening to his mission, and he's like, you've been tracing the syndicate, and he's like, your mission, and he's like, but by the way, we are the syndicate. Yeah. And I was like, yeah. oh my god, it's on. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there's some really cool tech, like they have that like electronic door opener where it's like a phone that just somehow becomes a key and they oh, do the that. key. Like, that's super cool. Yeah, the impossible key. Benji turning his opera playbill into a computer somehow is crazy. Oh, the uh, the digital paper thing? Yeah. That's so crazy. Not really tech, but kind of tech is like the saxophone or flute or whatever it is, like the saxophone sniper rifle that like yeah, the, transforms yeah. from a musical instrument into a gun is just like, oh my god. Dude, that whole sequence is a ballet going on above an opera. Like, it's so crazy. 
I love that whole sequence, man, with him jumping from platform and they can't make yes. a noise and they can't fall and all this stuff. <laughs> well, him also jumping from platform to platform because Benji's screwing up. Like, he's the one who's yeah. like, like, he's doing the, the other tech support, like, not turn it off, turn it on, but just like hit it as hard as you can and see if it works. And just like he hits something and like the thing jerks and cr- like he has like this easy way to take out the guy and then like he raises eight feet in the air. It's just like, like, you can see his face, like, God damn it. All right. Okay. Yeah. It's one of the many moments in the movie where Tom Cruise starts fighting a guy and realizes the guy's way bigger than him oh, and giant, he, gets, yeah. he gets like this look on his face he's like shit another one of these guys where do yeah. they build them <laughs> yeah i love cruz disarming ilsa when he's like basically i need to search you and like he's oh. just taking things out of her purse and like he knows what every weapon is and like you know she's got the knife or whatever in her hair instead of like the whatever holding her bun like her hair up and everything like that and just you know and like every time he takes a weapon out that doesn't look like a weapon but is very clearly a weapon like she just kind of like has a little wry smile like yeah, you got another one, but, like, you haven't gotten them all, right? So the mask reveal here in the trank when they get the thing, like, it's not surprising, but it's still really cool. Yeah, it's funny how the whole Benji never wearing a mask gag keeps paying off in this movie, too. Although he does wear the mask in the one version of the future that doesn't play out. Yeah, and, like, uh, right, when they sort of are conceiving the plan, they're like, what if we try this? <laughs> it doesn't Yes, and I have more trivia on that, but we'll get to that later. I think that's it. Is there anything else about the movie before we hear some trivia and play some games that you wanted to mention about Rogue Nation? Uh, again, I love when Ving Rhames just shows up, like, you know, almost halfway through the movie, and he's like, I'm here now, and I'm like, fuck yeah, I missed you, man. Like, it's so good yeah. to have him here, because he wasn't really in, wasn't he not really in the last one, yeah, He right? shows up at the very end, where he's just yeah. like, that's a crazy story, Ethan. <laughs> They're having beers. I'm like, what the hell is this? And then I just noted that, um, you know, they go, we mentioned earlier Halle Berry and John Wick 3, they actually go to Casablanca and this I forgot mm. that they were in Morocco but that was awesome I love when I just love for some reason it's just one of my favorite filmic settings is when yeah. we're in Morocco it's beautiful so trivia about this movie the flying airplane of course without the use of visual effects or a stunt double apparently Tom Cruise wanted to outdo himself climbing the Burj Khalifa in Ghost Protocol that really tall building right. and so they needed to come out come up with a way to basically keep him from getting hit by birds and wind resistance so they built a wind resistant custom frame um, which was mounted on the left wing of the plane and they also need to make sure that he could keep his eyes open because the wind is so strong up there that like it would just blow your eyes closed or you would you wouldn't be able to hold your eyes open so they built like contact lenses that basically kept the wind out or something and like what? able like made it look like he could keep his eye like it, it's insane that's incredible they did eight takes of it which seems like way too many whoa why? and Christopher McQuarrie was concerned that Cruz might panic while he was up there but he's basically just said like don't stop shooting until we get the shot and so they got the shot. Yeah, it's amazing. The craziest thing is that he got hit by a pebble up there while he was flying, and he said it was so painful that he was afraid to look at himself because he was like, I think I'm mortally wounded or something. But like, he Whoa. just found out there was like a tiny little pebble that got lodged in his clothing. And when they got down, like, he was surprised at how small, I don't know how big the pebble was, but it was such a small stone, but I guess it was just at such a high velocity, like probably like a bullet-ish, right? you know what I mean? Like, yeah. he was surprised that it was so small, but it hurt so bad. He, like, I was thinking, like, is this the craziest thing he does in the movie? And then later, he's riding a motorcycle at full speed with no helmet on or yeah. any gear, right? And he's really doing that, too. Yeah, so I and that's my like, next thing, yeah, that he okay. and Simon Pegg both did all their driving stunts. Whoa. And the stunt coordinator told Simon Pegg that Tom Cruise would do all the driving because he, quote, didn't have a better driver than him. Like, <laughs> <laughs> like it's we, we just did death proof for too fast too forever and we we did the you know i read this trivia that like zoe bell is cast basically in the lead or one of the leads there and tarantino wanted a stunt double for her but she's like look if this was uma basically and uma was on the hood of the car like i would be doing those stunts so like how are you going to take me out of and like yeah, i know it's point. i know it's impossible to kind of compare zoe bell who is amazing at her job the best stunt woman in the world or whatever Comparing her to Tom Cruise, who is like a $50 million, $75 million movie actor, like the face of a franchise or multiple yeah, yeah. franchises. Like, it's hard to compare the two of them, but it's funny to me that like both of them are just like, they're the best at what we do. And like, <laughs> what does it matter? Like, it's not going to be better and it's not going to be safer if they don't do it. So like, got to let them do it. It's weird to me that Zoe Bell has not been in more feature films being like, uh, like that she didn't become an action star. Like, blows my mind. Like, is, I can never, I'm never gonna understand that. Like, how she doesn't have, like, a franchise. I saw one movie she was in and it was not 
great. Well, she was in Edge of Tomorrow and totally wait, not Edge of Tomorrow. She was in Oblivion, totally wasted, just standing yeah, there with a yeah. with a rifle in her hand. And I'm like, get her in this movie, get her in Fast and Furious, get her out there. Yeah, you know, the same thing with Gina Carano. Like Gina Carano killed it in Six and Fast and Furious Six, and then like you know she's in other oh. bad movies. It's just like get like show how how hard is it to showcase these badass women who like aren't the best actors, but, like, can act more than well enough to be, like, a second or third. You know what I mean? Just, like, yeah. in spite of all the praise that we just heaped upon Tom Cruise, he was injured six times while making this movie. Well, yeah, I mean, come on. I mean, that's the, another thing about the next movie was sort of sold on the idea that, like, he broke his ankle and kept going in the shots in the movie. You know, like, this is starting to become yeah. part of the whole experience for, for everybody. It's like, how? Oh, where did he get hurt? How many times did he almost die? Like, that right. just... This is the first Mission Impossible film where the entire, Ethan's entire team was returning, that there was no new members. So that's, you know, the fifth moon in a franchise. That's pretty cool. The Syndicate, obviously the bad guys in this movie, were a regular antagonist in the original TV series. And they were mentioned, of course, in the last scene in Ghost Protocol, which we talked about. We talked about the high heels, the stilettos thing where he takes off. There was talk between Cruz and Christopher McQuarrie, or there was somebody, maybe the producer of the studio or something, wanted to have a promotional trailer or TV spot about that scene, but they're like, let's not. We know we're yeah. doing like a cool, like realistic thing. Like, let's not. They said the quote was, "It's not about twisting the knife." Like, we get we're doing a cool thing. Let's not draw extra attention to it, right? Like, it just. Yeah. I think they did the right thing there. Tom Cruise held his breath for six minutes underwater, which is just insane. Both Paula Patton and Maggie Q were set to reprise their roles from the past oh. movies, but both had to drop out due to scheduling conflicts. So I don't know how they would have come in, but hmm. I don't know. Benedict Cumberbatch, a.k.a. Doctor Strange, was the first actor considered to play a villain, so I think it'd be cool if he showed up in a future He'd have been pretty good as uh, Solomon. I could have seen that. Jessica Chastain was the first choice to play the female lead, I guess, Ilsa, but she declined because she did not like the prospect of spending up to six months training for the role. Apparently, she Mm. also turned down a role in Oblivion. Rebecca Ferguson was unanimously the second choice after The White Queen, which I mentioned before. Do you remember... When this came out, it was the same summer, the same time of whatever, that Disney announced Rogue One, and there was a very big kind of public battle between Paramount and Disney about the use of the word rogue. Do you remember this or no? Well, I da- no, I don't remember that at all. So from what I understand, and this is not exactly clear, I think Rogue Nation had already been announced, and then Disney was like, hey, Rogue One, a Star Wars story. They, Paramount's like, <laughs> guys, what are you... Like we have, like we're rogue. Like we, we're, we're rogue. You it's funny I mean? since like all the this news came out about Rogue One about they had so many other titles that they were considering too. So like for them to land on that, it, and I also remember a bunch of hashtags as Rouge One. Apparently the deal was that they wouldn't. I guess I don't know if they. I, I don't think you can like copyright or own a word, but I guess Paramount wouldn't force Disney or try to make Disney change the name of their movie, as long as Disney basically didn't market or promote their movie until after this one was already out. So basically, like, hey, you can be Rogue One, but, like, let us, like, don't don't ruin our premiere. Like, don't make people think this is, like, a Star Wars movie. Don't worry, Mission Impossible. At that point, I don't think Star Wars needed to promote anything for people to go to see their movies. Right. That was like year two when they came back in like 2016, I think that was released. Or something. But like, yeah, yeah, everyone was going anyway. <laughs> in this movie, Tom Cruise is only five years younger than John Voight was in the original one, which feels crazy huh. because like John Voight felt like, and he's, I mean, he's always felt like an old man, but like that's five years is basically a negligible age difference. And for yeah. them to be like Cruise to be again, still the leading man here as opposed to John Voight. Like, so that means like in, in Top Gun, too, right? Like, yeah. he is the same age as John Voight in the original one. Like, it's just, it's a crazy, huh. careers are crazy, man. It's wild. It's like when they were saying, like, Luke Skywalker's now the age of, like, that Alec Guinness was when he played Obi-Wan. So it's like, hey, well, everyone ages forward. Yeah. No one yeah. ages backwards. It's like, people are like, I'm like, why are you guys always so stunned that, like, <laughs> that people, people get, get old? old. <laughs> except for Tom Cruise. Everybody gets old except for Tom Cruise. Yeah, and Keanu, right? And, and Keanu. Keanu. So the main operatic theme in this movie is Nessun Dorma, which is from the opera Turandot, Turando, T-U-R-A-N-D-O-T. I'm showing my ignorance here, which is the same opera featured in the assassination scene. It also unofficially became Ilsa's theme, appearing several times in between scenes of her and Ethan, and even incorporated into the final musical cue on the soundtrack finale and curtain call. So then that became the theme, I think, or the closing theme or whatever for this movie. Basically, the song that when we, we see her trying to assassinate the Chancellor, which again, like, is such a complicated chess set there of like, 
multiple people trying to multi- assassinate multiple things or whatever, like that song becomes her theme, which I think is just a super cool thing to do about it. I recognize some of the music. I don't know that opera. I don't know much opera. I know like the Barber of Seville, and I know like La Boheme because of Moonstruck, right? <laughs> like I'm not yeah. <laughs> well versed in all that stuff. But what I did love is the way that they took a theme and sort of started doing variants of it. And right from the beginning, this movie, I love the music and how they twist the Mission Impossible theme and they just use like parts of it or, you know, like I, w- I was sort of talking about that when when a movie can really sort of like show different variations on the same song a lot. And I think that this movie did keeps doing it. And then a few more things very quickly. Michelle Monaghan, I said, does not return as Ethan's wife. And this is the first time in a Mission Impossible film the villain does not die. And this is also the first time in the Mission Impossible film that they do not do the jump and hang scene that was in the first movie. This is the first one where they're just like, no, we're not going to do that. Okay. This is, you know, J.J. Abrams directed the third one, and I think he said, I mean, this is still a bad robot movie. The number that Ethan has to type into the underwater safe is 108, which, of course, is the number he lost. Okay. And then the final bit of trivia here is that this is the mask thing I was talking about with Benji. So Benji mentions a ghost protocol that he wanted to wear a face mask. And although he appears to wear one in this movie, that scene turns out to be a hypothetical outcome of the mission. However, he actually does. A deleted scene set at CIA headquarters in Langley, when Benji was benched, has him impersonating Hunley with a face mask and engaging the real Hunley in a cat and mouse game. The scene was cut, though, as it was judged too confusing in previews. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad that was cut because I still don't know. They never really showed how we beat the lie detector even. I mean, I assume he used some kind of technology and stuff, but like, yeah, the less time we're spending there, I think the better. I didn't need I didn't need it to become like the Benji minute or what. I mean, you know, like they spent just the right amount of time on him. He's, he's playing video games because he's so fucking smart that like he can do his job blindfolded with one arm behind his back. Like, I love that about. Although, is he a little naive to think that he won tickets to the opera and that he's not like being set up as part of a game or, you know, like I just feel like your friend with Ethan Hunt, you miraculously yeah, like, get these opera tickets in the mail. <laughs> like, that's the thing. Like, when he gets it, he's just like, oh, hey, cool. Like, it's almost like he, like, entered into a raffle. It's like, oh, yeah, cool, mm-hmm. I won. And then he gets called away. But when you see that, like, when the viewer sees this, like, oh, that's Ethan sending him. Like, it almost like, I mean, they are tickets for the opera, but it feels like it's not tickets, like it's code. But it's, it's no, it's tickets to the opera, but, like, there's more to It's just, yeah, I, you're right. Like, how does Benji not realize? Yeah, I almost wondered if, he, you know, I mean, now I'm projecting, but I was like, is he just fooling himself? Like, he just wants to believe he won these tickets because, Maybe. like, he wants to be drawn into a mission somehow. <laughs> Maybe. And that's all the trivia that I have for this. So, Mike, first question, nice. important question. I mean, we've answered, it's over and over again, Tom Hanks could not play Ethan Hunt. However, no. who in this movie do you think Tom Hanks could play? I think right off the bat, the Alec Baldwin role feels within his wheelhouse. Oh, yeah. That would be so easy, though. Too easy. Like, I want to see him as Solomon Lane. Prep for the circle, baby. Take mm. on take on the syndicate. <laughs> Could he do a British accent? Like, that would be hilarious. Wait, what do you think the circle is about? Like, some kind of evil cult that tries to take over the world with technology? And and he's, like, at the center of it? It's like Super Facebook. Oh, man. I have to find that out now? Yeah. <laughs> I guess it's better than finding it out yeah. halfway through the movie. Temper your disappointment now. Like, it's already, you know, it's just going to be... Yeah, no, it's not like... Do you, like, I just want to make sure that no one compares the syndicate to the circle because like they're wildly different <laughs> well i didn't think they were like going because i just figured it was a bunch of like young tech savvy people like setting up these rube goldberg deaths for people that to get him out of the way and st- i don't know what I, I we'll get there but like I, I would still like to see hanks play like an evil british bond ish type of villain i mean to that point he could play atley too okay yeah maybe that's better but still like i'd love to see him try and do a british accent i mean okay. it would totally ruin the Mission Impossible movies, but like, I'd still love to see it. We've talked about this again and again and again. And again. And it's going to be a yes, yes. Does he run? Of course he runs. Could he be Lightning McQueen? Of course he can, because he's mm-hmm. been Lightning McQueen, and every other time we've played this, we've said yes. So, of course, Lightning McQueen, special agent, Lightning McQueen, reporting for duty. Yes, yes, yes. All right, the final thing to do, the Tom Cruise Awards, still no name, still unsure. Best film, this is interesting. So knowing that we're going to cut this down to 10, the question is how many of the 10 are going to be Mission Impossible? Because it could be <laughs> probably up to four. <laughs> right. I guess we put this on there for now and we, we, we make our future selves sorted out. Yeah. I mean, it's crazy, Joey, because my favorite Mission Impossible movie is still the first one. How is that possible? I don't understand it. So do you like, have, is it right now, one, five, four, two, three? It is actually. Yeah, I was just about to say that. Because mine, I think, is four, maybe four, one, five, two, three. I don't know. I, I really 
don't know. I don't yeah, know. It's going to be very tough. difficult. It's, yeah, it's weird, man. I mean, in that first movie, I think it gets a lot of style points, you know, um, just for being like super 90s and all that kind of shit. Like it just fits that decade so perfectly in the way that it's constructed. And then on top of that, like Mission Impossible lends itself to that style so well. So I don't know. I just keep thinking about that and going back to that. Best role, we already have Ethan Hunt. Best or most badass role, we already have Ethan Hunt. Most daring role to take, we obviously not. Best fight. Is there a fight in here? I feel like the the best hmm. fights are Ilsa fights. Like her and like it's the two of them, but like she does most of the work. Like I don't know that there's really unless I'm forgetting one, I don't know that there's a fist fight here. Like it feels like she's doing more hand to hand combat than he is. I agree with that. I think he's more or less getting his ass kicked again, like yeah. for the most part throughout this movie or like battled around and all that stuff best theme song soundtrack score we already have the franchise on there best vehicle chase race so we got to say well there's i guess there's the two things there's the car after the motorcycles and then there's the motorcycle after the motorcycles like it's chasing after you know what i mean so right is one of those both of those what do you what do you think like as cool as the motorcycles thing is it's more just like hey look at like tom cruise going fast without his helmet on it kind of ends sort of abruptly so i think everything up until when they like kind of crash down the stairs and he gets onto the motorcycle i think all that stuff is like because i mean also in terms of the motorcycle we know that in fallout there's gonna be another motorcycle thing thing which i think is even better right so like that right we'll get, right. We'll get to that in fallout but uh so chasing after Chasing after Ilsa, right? Right, yeah. After coming right back from the dead, remember? when <laughs> He's so yeah. funny. When Benji's like, he's like, are you okay to drive? He's like, yeah, I'm fine. He's like, but you were just dead. He's like, what are you, t- what are you talking about? <laughs> Actually, we can, we, you know, we don't have to distinguish. We could just say chasing after Ilsa, and that's the whole thing, right? Like, it's the car oh, into yeah. the bike, right? There you go. Best dance scene, no, sadly. Best uh, cruise outfit wardrobe, again, no, probably not. not. Really. No. I mean, he does wear that cool thing on his wrist when he does the deep dive, when he holds his breath. Like, that's so funny. I love that idea of technology. Just like, It is very cool. But I mean, Ilsa wears that too. You know what I mean? So I don't yeah, know. Yeah, 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 no. Best sunglasses. He wears sunglasses on the bike, but they kind of don't look cool. No, it's and he makes a point. There's a shot where he, like, picks up the sunglasses to put them on. And I know it's probably for, like, his eyes for the wind and stuff, but I, I got a feeling it was, like, a trademark moment. Best death defibrillated again. Insane. Because that's how he was in Mission Impossible 3. So that's now, like, oh, God, how many is this? Four, eight, like, 13 or 15 times he's died, which is crazy. Insane, insane. <laughs> Best line, I am the disc? I mean, that's good. That's, I mean, it's so great in the moment. Yeah, it doesn't really have that many sort of like, I don't no. want to call them punchlines, but like, he doesn't have that many one-liners. Well, it's almost like, it's not like he's tired, but he's like, I, I have to save my energy to save the world. I can't be like quipping right now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Best freakout. I feel like he is pretty calm considering how terribly things go for him in a lot of, like he doesn't, he never gets mad at Ilsa, even after she betrays him. It's just like, no, like, you know. I, I have faith in her. Like, it just feels like he's yeah. very even-keeled this entire movie, which is surprising. There's a great moment you, in a line that you mentioned earlier that, that sort of goes along with that when Benji's like, she tried to shoot me. And he's like, well, that doesn't make her a bad person. It just yeah. shows how calm and even-keeled he is in that moment throughout, you know, and he just carries that the whole movie. Best sex scene? No, there are none. Most athletic oh, feet. I just wanted to say about the sex scene. Um, we brought up in Edge of Tomorrow how, like, those characters kissed at the end, and it was sort of, like, a confusing moment or, like, right. just, like, this offbeat and here they don't and i was like oh here's where they're gonna kiss and i don't remember if they do and they don't they just kind of hug it out uh, yeah. which i thought was very cool i mean he is married right um or is he not still married i don't know i may think he's separated but you know i think a peck uh, one one kiss uh, this look they just saved the world i mean right. If it happened, again, I'd be like, yeah, just give it to him. But, like, I was kind of glad not to see that. Most athletic feat, is it shimmying up the pole? it is shimmying up the pole. I've never seen anything like that before. And I'm sure there's, like, tons of guys who can, like, and women who can do that. But, like, I don't know when or why or how you'd decide to learn something like that. Right. So, like, just getting the idea and executing it and showing me something so fucking hard to comprehend that he did, like, I'm still flummoxed agreed agreed best running scene i don't think so right i mean there's like chases but i feel like given what we know is coming and what we've already had i don't think so 
No, I don't think so. I'd love to see Tom Cruise running on a treadmill in a movie one day. That, that, <laughs> that would be something. <laughs> Best or worst love story? No, to your point, your very well-made point that there is not really a love story. Best ensemble cast? I guess we could put this again, like Mission Impossible. We already have three and Ghost Protocol, and now we can add Rogue Nation, I think. We'll whittle that down. Best non-Cruise actor, male or female? We've got to say... Gotta. Rebecca, Rebecca Ferguson. Ferguson. The second Rebecca after Rebecca Domorne. Oh, look at that. Business. It's going to be the Battle of the Rebeccas. So Rogue Nation individually has seven nominees. Best Film, Best Vehicle Chase Race, Best Death, Best Line, Most Athletic Feet, Best Ensemble Cast, and Best Non-Cruise Actor Female. Great. Very, very cool. Well, Mike, next week, well, actually today, I mentioned earlier, today on the Hanks from the Memories feed, we have The Polar Express, a movie that you and I liked a little bit less than we liked this one. Just a bit, but a little bit more than I thought I was going to like. So. That's fair enough. Next week, though, we've got a doozy. On the Hanks from the Memories feed, we've got The Da Vinci Code. And... Oh. It does feel like we're riding such high highs over here, and it's just like, okay, yeah, uh huh, we got to do this two and a half hour movie based on a book that was like wildly popular that is not actually. I found a, uh, I found a DVD copy in my basement. Some I don't, I must belong to someone else in the family, and I, I must have grabbed it when we started doing Hanks for the Memories and everything. Two disc special edition, ninety minutes of extra features. I won't be watching. The movie's a mere hundred and forty nine minutes. So if Dude, you want to spend, this you is know, the, four hours, do the whole thing. This is the heaviest DVD I've, I own. <laughs> it's crazy. I don't know why it's so heavy. <laughs> I mean, there's secrets in there. Yeah, but on many. this feed next week, we have the Jack Reacher sequel, Jack Reacher Never Go Back. So nice. going from one for action franchise sequel to another. Uh, again, sort of a slight step down from Rogue Nation, but again, it's going to be fun oh. to watch because Cruise as Jack Reacher is always fun yeah. to watch. But we are rapidly approaching the end of Cruise Club. We've got one, two, three, four more movies after this one including one wow. more Mission Impossible, and then we're going to be caught up, especially as Top Gun got delayed, so there's not going to be any more mm-hmm. until that comes out. So, oh, yeah, we're almost yeah. at the end of the initial run of Cruise Club, and then, you know, it's all of our focus will be over on Hanks for the Memories, the other shows in the network, but, yeah, there's still some good stuff to come in Cruise Club, so just stay tuned. Yeah, I was just thinking with Jack Reacher, is another character with an immaculate memory, right? You can't mm. sell, I made that joke, you can't, Jordan Belfort couldn't sell him a pen. Yeah. Like, that's, turning into Tom Cruise's character thing. It's like, just perfect memory. (laughs) Yeah. Any other thoughts about Rogue Nation before we uh, go home, or stay home, or whatever? (laughs) Uh, No, ma'am. I want to go watch Fallout really bad right now, so I can't wait to do that. We'll be talking about that in four weeks, but for now, for all things Cruise Club, you can go to cageclub.me, facebook.com slash cageclub, or at Cage Club Pod on Twitter and Instagram. Email us, run, R-U-N, at cageclub.me. Come back next time for, like I said, Jack Reacher, Never Go Back. Check out Hanks for the Memories every Friday now. Both of these shows are weekly, so today, Polar Express. Next week, The Da Vinci Code. Check out all 1,500-something episodes of all of our shows at cageclub.me. Check out Too Fast, Too Forever every Tuesday and Friday right now. Third time to charm, the third of every month right now. And, you know, we're putting out like 50 episodes a month. Just if you need podcasts, they're out there for you. I'm Joey Lewandowski. And I'm Mike Manzi. And we'll see you next time right here on Cruise Club.